This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. It was because he was polling rabbis to find out what they said Judaism was. And every single rabbi said something different. And so I said something different as well, which is kind of interesting. Like, that sounds quite pluralistic, considering I think every rabbi he asked was of the Torah-observant types, meaning they, they were all what the what, what secular or conservative or reformed Jews call orthodox. We don't use that term, by the way. Never call yourself orthodox. Like, that was a term that we were labeled with by guilty-feeling Jews who like, <laughs> kind of dropped everything. And so what happened, they felt bad about their own observance or lack of observance. And so what's the simple way out of the guilt? Call those who actually still keep Torah orthodox, which is the word strict. The word orthodox means strict. So call them strict. Now, do I seem like a strict person too? <laughs> Some people are laughing because they know me a bit. I'm like the least strict person you'll ever meet. I mean, the strict is not really our, our theme around here. Hey, you know, we got some seats right here. How many are you? Three? Five. Five, no problem. Gentlemen, can, would you be so kind as to bring in a couple more chairs, please? Or maybe slide one. How you doing, ladies? We interrupt this class for five ladies. Walking in the classroom right now. Um, can I get one of you dudes to sit, sit uh, in this seat? And then slide over one so the ladies can sit together. Maybe slide. Oh, yeah, you got an extra chair. Oh, amazing. They're just opening up everywhere. Should I start the video again? This video is off to a lousy start. Anyway, you know what? I'll just keep ranting about the word orthodox for a while. Anyway, uh, so guys, we're gonna we're gonna knock the word orthodox out of our vocabulary from now on. Okay, no more orthodox. Orthodox was a label given to Jews who actually keep the Torah. Yeah, it shouldn't be a term, you know. Like if you met someone who kept traffic laws in a on the car, you know, driving, you know, I wouldn't call him an orthodox driver, you know. <laughs> you know, someone who like keeps the bylaws of the company he works for. We don't call him orthodox. He's an Orthodox member of Apple. <laughs> Are there any? <laughs> Can we close the door, please? So, so you understand, like, the word Orthodox is, like, just the most ridiculous term. And, and it's also the whole, the whole fact that the word Orthodox means strict. Is that I do know strict Jews. You know, there are, I, I know people like that, but they're generally, it's a personality type. It's not, it has nothing to do with their Judaism, meaning they, they're already OCD. And just kidding. There are already strict types of people who are keeping the same exact laws as I am. But the difference between us is they're like kind of strict personalities, and I'm like a really chill personality. But like neither of us would do something against the Torah if you put a gun to our head. We're going to both be strict if you tried to get us to stop keeping Torah. But it's a personality thing. So the word orthodox just means it's just another term for lame Okay? And. <laughs> Nerd, you know, he's orthodox. In our family, we actually have a term if, like, someone buys a lame pair of shoes. Like, one of my daughters comes home in shoes that just look lame, so we say, Those shoes are ortho. 
ortho. <laughs> it's actually become an adjective in our entire extended family that uh, anything that's super lame is called ortho. <laughs> you never heard that before? Is that totally ours? Because I was starting to question it after a while. It was, like, it was so well used that I thought maybe it came from someone else. Anyway, so we have no pride at all in being Orthodox Jews, and we, and we never use that term. So, so just wipe it out of your vocabulary. If you'd like another term, try the word observant. You know, observant would be probably the most appropriate, that they actually observe the Torah's traditions, they observe the tribal heritage of Israel. And again, it was a label that was given to the Jews who actually held on to Judaism. Oh, we got a seat right here. For, you know, I, I'm standing in front of two seats. I didn't even see them. Oh, there's a, some spots over here. Yeah, peel off one of those. I'm going to make a rough... I think this is my most interrupted class I've ever had. But I love it because it's a drop-in course. And the people who've come in late have fulfilled the drop-in aspect more than anyone else. In fact, her parachute's in a tree outside. Baruch and just one other term that you're going to be a little shocked like okay I bet all of you agree with me that Orthodox should just be completely wiped out of our lexicon but there's uh, unless you're talking about Greeks but the uh, but there is another term that I strongly suggest you get rid of as well and this is not going to be very politically correct so I apologize in advance and no one should please no one should think I'm here to offend anybody and if I offended you too bad. Just kidding. No, if I offended you, I, I apologize. Um, but the other word's religious. Okay. Judaism is like, it's it's not religious, it's not meant to be religious, it's not, and it also, there's something called religion, which automatically legitimizes all of them, because the second you say that, that, the second you say that Judaism's a religion, or maybe you're talking about the other religions, like there's Judaism's as a religion, and then there's the other religions. The second you use that word religion, you're already putting Judaism on a... You're putting all other religion... Sorry, I just said it. I just said it. You put not a religion. You put religions on the same bedrock, the same footing as Judaism. Judaism, which is a provable national revelation. Judaism, which you cannot... It's incontrovertible that the Torah is actually a divine document. No one else can claim any of that stuff. You know what the difference between a religion and a cult is? <laughs> Not much. Okay, the difference between a religion, the difference between a religion and a cult is the number of people. It's just the number of people. That's it. That's the difference between a religion and a cult. Just how many people are keeping it. The word religion is used as a legitimizing term to make people who are stuck in an oversized cult feel better about themselves. Okay? What is a religion and a cult? It's the same exact thing. It's just people believing in crazy stuff. But if you got enough of them, it seems to legitimize itself just by sheer numbers. But but we're Jews here, okay? And, and we don't... Numbers makes us nervous, not, not makes us more confident. You know? <laughs> we're like the ultimate skeptics. You know? Jews are so skeptical about everything. And numbers is one of those things. So if you got enough Jew, anyone's believing in something, that's a second, that, that's a red flag for a Jew. You know, that a lot of people believe in something is automatically a red flag. Like this. Gesundheit. Like we smell a skunk when, when, we, when people are like, well, everyone believes in this. You know, oh, great. You know, we get a guy, a guy sitting in this class once in a while, we'll get a guy in here 
And this is like not a good move, by the way, because it puts our red flag up right away. He says, he's like sitting on the edge of his chair. Everyone, please, no one move right now. Everyone stay exactly how they're sitting. Now, don't move. Okay, I'd like you to focus on the guy with the red shoes over here. Just wave your hand, but don't move. See how he's sitting kind of like half in a lounge chair like he's in Club Med or something? Okay, that's, that's the Jewish position while learning Torah. It's like, don't even bother me, you know, like, like... It, it's just like one gigantic grain of sand. Grain of sand? Salt. One gigantic grain of salt with everything the rabbi is about to say. You're also Led Zeppelin over here in the shirt with his arms crossed. No, keep your arms crossed. He's like this. Okay? He's like, yeah, we'll see. This guy right next to him, he's like, that's a real open position you're in over there. Okay? <laughs> you guys are like, all you're saying right now with your arms crossed while I'm teaching is, I'm Jewish. That's it. You're just saying I'm Jewish, okay? This woman's in yoga position. She's like, okay, Rabbi, I'll listen to you, but don't, don't tell me I can't say om on the hour, okay? So, Jewish, okay? But once in a while, we get this guy coming in here. He's got his, you know, big keep on, you know. He's even got the cosmic dental floss, you know. He's swinging that around. And he, he sits down in here, and he's just like, he's like, Rabbi, teach me the Torah. You know, we're just immediately going... he's a Gentile and so large numbers of people large numbers of people believing in something to us is a red flag that means something's wrong here and it's very interesting that our nation which in the Torah says we will always remain few in number that we've always remained few in number and we, we get nervous around numbers we see numbers of people into something, we immediately say something's wrong. Because we're, we, are, we are born skeptical. We mismatch things we hear. We, want, we don't match them, we mismatch them. And that's the way you clarify things and find out if something's real or not. Because we're not interested in something that's not real. Imagine we're on a hike together. I mean, it's kind of a large group for a hike, but imagine we're hiking and <laughs> we hear some noise inside a cave. So we like, we get down like low and we look inside the hole of the cave and we see down below, we see nine people all bowing down to this one person in a white robe, you know, and he's just like, I'm the son of God, you know. And now would, would we believe we found a cult or a religion? Which one? Yeah, that, that's a cult, right? Now, what happens is they move to our town, and we start recognizing people from the cave in town. And next thing you know, they're, like, inviting everyone for free pizza and beer, which is what most rabbis do on campus. But they're, they're, they're offering free pizza and beer, and they're gaining numbers. Next thing you know, the bank teller, you go to the bank teller, and you see the bank teller is wearing, you know, some little symbol they wear, and... Anyway, it just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing. Well, once they get to enough numbers, it becomes what's called a social economic pressure. There's a social economic pressure because you have social means like politically and stuff and economic means like to sell products and stuff. You've got to give them a new name because cult's just not going to go over so well. So what we do is once they hit a critical mass of numbers, it gets this term called a religion. But if you're Jewish... That doesn't mean anything. All because Judaism, we get nervous around numbers, and we we like to shrink the numbers down to ten, and instead see what they're saying. So if they're saying something legit, 
So maybe there's something to it. But if they're if they're making stuff up, so then we're not that interested. And one of the main things that, that that's going to be a red flag is blind faith. Blind faith is a big red flag. Jews aren't into that kind of thing. We're just not into that thing. Like it's funny. We we don't have a term for it. Like our term for faith is the word emunah. And it doesn't mean faith. It means faithful. It means faithful. We're not, we're not into faith. We're into being faithful. You get that? Like when something's real and true to you, like a spouse, you're faithful to that person. When something's real and true to you, like God, you're faithful. It means you're, you don't cheat. So that, that's the word faith for, for Judaism. It's funny, we actually say the word uh, after Shema at night. We say, and this is all... Like, this is like a faithful reality to all of us. It uses the word emunah. Is there a seat for you back there? I'm fine. Um, <laughs> oh, my gosh. I was just... Uh, sorry, you just said the buzzword. I'm fine. I was just with this old, amazing, elderly Jewish lady. Uh, we were touring around the building with her. And her terms... She kept saying, I'm fine. Which is amazing. Because she, she had some knee problems. She said, I'm fine about 50 times. Wouldn't you love it if we all said that all the time? I mean, think about the crazy stuff we say about ourselves inside. How about, I'm fine. I'm, I'm okay, I'm fine. But it could also be like a Jewish trait of like old ladies. You know, like how many, how many Jewish old ladies does it take to change a light bulb? I'll just stay in the dark. I'll just sit here in the dark. So, anyway... The back to us is just one more thing. I just since I'm on this, I just want to mention that a big red flag for us is the afterlife. Anyone talking afterlife is like that's a red flag. Okay? Why? Because it's manipulation. The number one fear of humanity is death. It's the number one fear. And so if you start stacking the odds of like believe in this and it'll be good for you, don't believe in this, you're going to hell. You understand that, that that's just manipulation. That's manipulation. And, and anyway, what good is any of your service if that's why you joined? What good is any of your service? You were, t- you were, you just had, you were put in a police headlock. You know, like, of course you're going to cooperate. You know, so, so what good was anything you did? Doesn't that, is there going to be any reward for your good deeds? If the reason you're in is because you're, you were put in a police headlock with afterlife threats... You come to our classes, like a Jewish class, any institution teaches Judaism, you could be there for years before you hear anything about the afterlife. It's not that we don't believe in an afterlife. For sure, the soul's going to outlive your body. Your soul has nothing to do with your body. Just like your consciousness is not, is not linked to your body, your consciousness will definitely outlast your body. You know, people die on hospital beds and they bring them back with the PJCs, the people jumper cables. They, they, they have whole stories to tell. They're talking about a kid with a broken rib in the pre, you know, postnatal care. You know, they, 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 the uncon- inconsolable baby had a broken rib. And the guy who died in the emergency room, after they bring him back, he says, oh, by the way, there's a baby with a broken rib a couple doors down. And he went and he heard the cries and went and checked it out. So the, your consciousness is eternal. If anything, the only thing blocking it is is your body. 
because your neurons, your neurons are a little busy most of the time, just going like, ning, 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 you know, which they're doing right now as well. And your neurons just never shut up unless you ask them to. And then they're very polite about it. I'll show you, really. You want to try it? Want to get your neurons to shut up? They'll do it. Yeah, they, I'm serious. Like, it's amazing. Now, the one thing you have to do is, they'll be polite about it. You can't be polite. What you have to do is tell your neurons to shut up. So we're going to say, shut up neurons on three, and then we're all going to snap both fingers. Ready? Everyone get your hands free. Okay, so what's going to happen is I'm going to say one, two, three, and then we're all going to say together, shut up neurons, but tough, like, <laughs> shut up neurons. And then all those little neurons, which, by the way, your neurons are atheists. Yeah, your, your neurons are atheists. That's why we put our tefillin. It has to be above the hairline because that's the soft spot on the skull where the where the there's a bit of an aperture there that goes straight to the neurons, and it impresses upon your neurons that there's God, you know, Shema Yisrael, which is written inside those boxes. So, so your neurons are atheists because all they do is track sound, sight, taste, hearing, smell. Like that's what their job is. Their job is not God. Their job is is just to report to your consciousness. They're reporters. They're just reporters. But if you, what happens is, if you s stop realizing that your neurons are reporting to you, they actually hijack you and make you think you're them. I mean, think about it. Who, who have you, who are you? I mean, who have you been if not who your neurons have been telling you are all these years? Ever thought about that question? Who are you? Who have you been as a personality, as a self-image? Who have you been if not who your neurons have been telling you you are. Which is a very strange thing, because if you look at a picture of a neuron, it's, it's just a microscopic little doodad. You know, it's, it's certainly not something you would allow. Would you guys let me tell you who you are? Would you do that? No, so certainly not a microscopic doodad <laughs> telling you who you are. But think, who have you been if not who your neurons have been telling you you are? And they're certainly in no position to be telling you who you are. It's just that they notice that you're not paying any attention to them. So they wind up, you know, they say, hey, she's not listening, so let's hijack her. And then next thing you know, you're hijacked by your self-image, which makes you perfect fodder for marketing. Because now that your self-image is, you know, being told to you by your neurons, well, what, do you, what version of you are your neurons giving you? The most amazing, holy, you know, solid smart, beautiful, powerful. Is that what your neurons say about you? Probably not. Probably not. It's probably more something like, maybe I shouldn't say, should I say it? Just say it. No, don't say it. Say it. All in favor of say it, say it. Okay. So your neurons are probably saying something more like, uh, that you are uh, unlovable, ugly, annoying, um, stupid, unnecessary, not needed, are you referring to extra. The, are you referring to neurons like the Yitzhahara? We never use that term in my class, the Yitzhahara. What do you, what do you call neurons? We're just calling them neurons right now. So uh, neurons are calling us ortho. Ortho, yeah. Um, what else are neurons saying? Oh, misfit. Uh, loser. <laughs> uh, what else did neurons say? Uh, misguided ragamuffin. <laughs> misguided ragamuffin. Uh, schlumper. Uh, not good enough. Not good enough. Not as good as, and then you fill in the blank with someone else. 
probably a sibling who's older or one of your parents or something. Um, did we mention ugly? Um, <laughs> uh, what else did the neurons think? Ah, weak. We have to do all the weak, small, vulnerable, um, in danger. There's one where I was thinking of uh, weak, small, and worthless. <laughs> worthless is a good one. Hopeless, helpless, powerless, powerless uh, unsafe, unsafe. That's always a good one. Unsafe. Un- Did I mention unlovable, unlikable? Yeah. Anyway. Without merit. <laughs> unworthy. Yeah. Which one? I'll tell you in a sec. Remind me of that. You two. You, the two who like the word. <laughs> Yeah, it's fine. Um, and the um, anyway, but that's what the neurons have been saying. Ah, thank you. That's what the neurons have been saying. So, you guys ready to tell the neurons shut up? Okay, here we go. So, what we're gonna do? I'm gonna say one, two. Don't say it yet. I'm, let me show you how it goes because we got to do it all together. Okay, it's gonna shock them. Ready? So, we're gonna say one, two, three, and then we're all gonna say shut up, neurons, and then we're gonna snap. So, let me show you once. And then we'll do it together. Okay, so watch. It's going to be like this. Just listen. One, two. Don't, don't say it. One, <laughs> two, three. Shut up, neurons. Like that, okay? Okay, ready? And we get your snappers ready. If you don't know how to snap, just clap. Okay, do like a, not that, but like a, okay? And a nice lady, do you mind uh, turning off the air conditioning power? We need it for this exercise. It's got a little power button. Ready? One, two, three. Shut up, neurons. <laughs> again. It'll be the first silence maybe any of you have ever heard. Ready? One, two, three. Shut up, neurons. the same dance to the sounds because it's just math 
It's just all vibration. It's just that they wouldn't be able to match the sounds with, with the language of Zimbabwe. So they would just hear the sounds. They'd hear your, the, the brain pattern. If we could put the neurons on a screen, it would do the same thing yours is doing, except yours locks it in with every bit of English you've ever heard. So your neurons are actually what rip you off of the present also because they're constantly matching to the past. You, you be, you, you, the more you get into what I'm teaching you today, the more you'll, you'll get present to your life and how awesome it is and how awesome you are. Because, I mean, I would not, if I were you, my advice is not to give to your neurons any self-talk. Self-talk should be coming from the soul, not from the neurons. Neurons are not soul. They have nothing to do with your soul. Their job is only to report to you that you're going down a flight of stairs. That's, a, that's good news. You want that reported to you. But that's their job, nothing else. Your job of your neurons is to remind you sometimes that you haven't called your parents lately and call them. But their job is not to be telling you who you are. And they're certainly not to be matching everything with the past. I mean, they are for the stairs, but not everything else. And it's amazing we're talking about this right now because Rosh Hashanah, the word Rosh is head, and Shana really means change or year, but it's like God's flipping the head around. He's like changing our heads, He's changing the headspace. It's a new world, new year. It's a brand new world. Like, why would you ever, what would you allow to dictate your year other than what is just present right now? It's a new world. It's a new year. And listen, your neurons are pretty darn quiet from the looks of your faces. So, like, so what's up now? Like, that's why the funny thing is, is like, it's so easy to jump into eating kosher or keeping Shabbat or anything, because, like, <laughs> why wouldn't I? Like, you know, unless I'm like stuck in some loop. Uh, by the way, that's obviously with the Torah verified. I'm not saying someone should do that on faith, as you can imagine. You want some more ACA? You can turn it back on. You turned it? You saw it was good, though, for the shut-up neurons, all right? That's all right. Neurons can shut up with a little noise of a motor that needs maintenance badly. Now, um, back to us. Um, so religions, uh, Judaism is not a religion. Is that clear? Now, there are a lot of religious Jews, a lot of religious Jews. Like, for example, um, I know a lot of Hasidic Jews who... Um, who are very religious. Meaning, what, do I, what am I defining as religious? They don't know that any of it's necessarily true. They were just raised this way. You understand? They were just raised that way. Is that religion or is that Judaism? It's religion. Are they keeping the traditions? Yeah, and, and I'm glad. I mean, that we should be faithful to our traditions. I personally think 
that some guy born in the Amazon jungle or some African jungle or some Sri Lankan jungle should stay true to his ancestry, like stick with it. And I believe Jews also should, should be true to their ancestry. So even a Jew who's religious, with the exception of idolatry, I was, is it, oh, you weren't going to bring up idolatry? Wait, i got to answer their question first. The reason we don't mention Yitzhahara, um, just to teach all, you, all of you a t- good tool for growth. You guys into growth? I don't know. You guys like growth stuff? So just a good tool for growth is never use the word Yitzhahara. Why? You know the term Yitzhahara? Everyone knows? Oh, it means, uh, sorry, Yitzhahara means the evil inclination. Like there's the, there's like the good inclination and the evil inclination. You know those two? Like the one that has you take seconds of something you shouldn't be eating in the first place? That's the evil inclination. Because it's going to make you now tired and slothly. And, whereas the Yetzir Tov will say, you know what, just hold off. That's the Yetzir Tov. The Yetzir Hara sees a beggar, you know, walking through the Jewish quarter and says, says, oh man, how can I avoid this? And the Yetzir Tov says, Yetzir Tov says, you know, like, this guy's on the streets. Like, maybe you could spare a shekel. And the Yetzir says, as you dig in your pocket, oh, there's a half shekel. <laughs> yeah. And then the Yetzir Tov says, you're a cheapskate. What is that, 10 cents? You wouldn't give a bum a 10 cents in America, you know, like, at least give him 50 cents or a dollar or something. And then you feel this other one, and it's like, oh, that's got the shapes on the side. That's a five. That's not going out. <laughs> so, like, the, these, are the, these are the two Yetzers, Yetzer Tov and the Yetzahara. Those are the two Yetzers. But uh, we don't say the word Yetzahara much, because one of its tricks is for you to just use this, like, all-encompassing Yetzahara. It's like this blanket statement. Oh, it must have been the Yetzahara. It likes it when you say that. You know why? Because then it's just like, okay, as long as they're... Because Yetzirah doesn't do general. It only does specifics. And so if you're going to stay general with the term, with Yetzirah, it's going to be really happy with you. Because it's just going to nail you somewhere else. So what's important with Yetzirah is you specify what Yetzirah we're talking about. Is that clear? You want to be really specific with the Yetzirah. Don't use, in fact, don't even let it leave your lips much. Rather, the second you're going to say Yetzirah, stop yourself for a second and say, which Yetzirah? Is this the cheapskate in me? Is this my neurons telling me I'm ugly? Is this my, you know, my social anxiety Yetzirah? You know, which Yetzirah is this? Is this my Yetzirah to be, um, to steal? Is it my Yetzirah to eat? But you might say it's my Yetzirah to eat whatever I want. Like, for example, non-kosher food. Like, I want to eat whatever I want. But then that's a different Yetzirah. You know what Yetzirah that is? It's a Yetzirah of, of that you're out of control. Meaning that you're, you're a controlled being. Which probably comes from childhood because someone controlled you. And so now you, you refuse to keep kosher. Because no one's dictating what you put in your mouth. But if you go deeper, instead of just saying it's a Yetzirah, but go deeper... And say, no, actually, I was controlled at either there was, God forbid, a terrible situation, you know, like a molestation or something, or it was a family dynamic where the parents didn't allow you to, like, make any choices, or, or who knows what, uh, an education system that was very controlling. But uh, just to call, like, give that, like, platitude of Yetzirah is going to give the Yetzirah a major victory with you. 
You have to, you understand, you gotta get in there. You gotta say, what is it? What, what's going on inside there? What's, what's really happening here? And then you can, then you got it GPS. And once you've GPSed it, now I can say, hmm, is meat eating less or eating kosher? A meat surrendering to con- being controlled? No, that's ridiculous. It's me being healthy and me being spiritually aligned. That's called spiritual alignment and healthy body. So, like, what kind of games was I playing, you know, with myself? Clear? That was that answer. And then, Ellie Mary, you had a question? Yeah. Um, yeah, you were saying that the main difference between Judaism that it's not a religion is that we can prove that we've had a national revelation. We can verify our our tradition. It's verifiable. If it's so easily verifiable... It's not easily verified. It's verifiable. So what do you think... You're saying it's more likely true than not? Um, it's beyond a shadow of a doubt. But there's got to leave. I mean, there's got to be some aspect of doubt, I guess, in life at some point. I mean, it's really hard if you're a nation to a rabbi to have much doubt because we spend so much time with you guys, and we get to like we like get to hit why we do what we do at every single angle, like all year round. So we don't get a lot of room for doubt. But I'm sure there's plenty of people who I would call fully observant, not religious, fully observant, who still have some doubt. That's okay. I personally think having doubts really hard, especially when you're staring at the Temple Mount and we have coins with King David's name on it and we know he lived only a couple hundred years after Sinai. So like, and he certainly didn't make up Judaism. So where'd it come from? You know, if not where it says it came from. He was keeping Torah and not only he was keeping Torah, the entire nation was keeping Torah. All the tribes were in their locations. We have all this archaeologically. Meaning you meet these guys who have a Yetzirah to say, they have a Yitzhar to say that, uh, you know, maybe people made it up. I mean, it's been a couple thousand years, you know, 3,000, how many? 3,330 years now. But it's not like that, because all you have to do is stare out this window, you know, exhibit A. You know. Well, sorry, I had a guy at the Kotel say to me, he says to me, we're down at the Kotel, like literally staring at like Solomon's temple, you know. We're staring at this thing. And he says to me, I don't know what he was thinking, but he was like, how do we know this is even true? And, and so I slapped him. <laughs> Normally I don't slap people. I think voicing doubt is like so Jewish as I've already spoken. Like voicing doubt is like, it's like really in a way it's the key to Judaism. Is you want to voice doubt. Voice it though. Don't just hide it, you know, with your, with your cheeseburger. You know, you you got doubt, voice it. And uh, I just slapped him because it just seemed like the right thing to do at the time. <laughs> We're staring at this, like, gigantic thing that's like, you know, had we had that conversation in L.A., I'd say, like, you know, you sh- I, w- I would say to him, I wish we were having this conversation staring at David's, you know, David and Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. Like, you you just wouldn't be asking me that. But, uh, but an- another thing is, like, we got proofs that get into like the nitty gritty of how we know this is real, like really nitty nitty gritty. And uh, I'll tell you one of the funniest ones is here. I have a Torah right here. Um, right, we got a Torah. So 
So you would think like it would be easy to figure out who, like whether. I mean, let's just say you had any book. Uh, anyone got another random book? Give me that book for a second. <laughs> So here's a book called Jewish Meditation. I'm covering the author's name, okay? It's called Jewish Meditation. And now, let's say no one heard... I mean, I know who wrote the book because I know who wrote Jewish Meditation, but let's just say none of us knew who wrote this book. Let's say no one in the country knew who wrote this book. Do you think we could figure out who wrote the book? Without Google. Without Amazon, without anything. You think we could figure it out? Exactly who wrote this book. Would that be a complicated thing for the Mossad? Not at all. Would it be complicated at all for people whose specialty is, uh, is identifying documents, identifying the authorship of documents? You think that'd be difficult? It'd be beyond easy. Beyond easy. Now, listen to this crazy... It, this is a crazy thought. Ellie, Mary, before you go, you just got to hear this crazy thought. Here's a Torah, okay? This is the Torah. <laughs> We're trying to figure out if man wrote it or God wrote it. Is that the most ridiculous question in the world? Whether man wrote or God? Like, like, we could figure out that book, not only that book, no title on the book. We could just take a page, rip a page out of a book, and take it to any, identify, any professional identifier of authorship. He would probably be able to figure it out. It might take him longer, but he could probably figure it out. Eventually get it. Or within 100 people on the planet. You know, 50 people on the planet. But here, we got this book. And we're trying to figure out if it's from God or man. You ever thought how ridiculous that is? Yeah, so you didn't figure that out. Am I the only one who realizes this? Does anyone know where I'm going with this? No one got that? It's a poor proof because no, I'm not even, no one even got the proof. Did you get the proof? We're not even, first of all, first of all, I was not giving a proof. I was asking a question. Does anyone realize how ridiculous that question is? Whether man or God wrote... Not... I don't mean like that. This is so funny that I'm in this situation, but I'm going to dig myself out. Don't worry. <laughs> I just... I think, I, I think there's something that... Authorship's not complicated to figure out. If it was a human being, it should be pretty easy. If it were God, it should be pretty easy. Not that we know what God does when he authors books, but meaning we wouldn't have a lot of samples of that, but we would have definite samples of human writing. So it shouldn't be difficult to figure out if this is human or God. You get that? You get the ridiculousness of the question? Because it just should be so simple. Like It can't be complicated whether it's God or God or human. That's the point of me. You got that point? Is that point clear? Yeah. I'm not saying it is clear. I'm just saying it should it shouldn't be a question that's complicated. That's all. You ever got that? I'm not saying it's clear whether it's God or man. I'm saying it should be the most ridiculous question in the world of trying to figure out whether the authorship's the divine or the authorship's a human being. That should not be a complicated question. That should be like for for an authorship, for an authorship professional. That would be the silliest question in the world. And what do you think he would say, God or man? Yeah. Mm, what would it depend on? 
What would it depend on? You realize there would be some factors, whether he would say it's God or man. What would be some of the factors? I'm going to leave this up to you guys. You can go. What would be some of the factors? What's inside the book. Okay, what's inside the book? Some of its content. Yeah? It really depends on if he's, if he's like a believer or not. Yeah, what if the guy's an atheist? Who is it automatically? Man. Automatically, man. If he's agnostic? So you start to realize, like, discovering the authorship of this book is not so scientific. It's going to depend on things. How about this? The book, when you, like, distill all its commandments, how many commandments? 613, and when you distill them into their laws, because not one commandment tells the law. You realize that? Like, when I put on tefillin, the law isn't put on tefillin. That's the commandment. The laws are, I think it's like seven or 800 laws. You understand? It's not a law to keep Shabbos. That's one of the commandments, some spiritual pipe called Shabbos. The laws are, it's a couple thousand, I think it's like four and a half, five thousand laws. How to actually keep the laws of Shabbos. So we actually counted all the laws of the book. Leave it to Asia Torah to count the laws. There were, we actually counted all the laws. You know how many laws there are in this book? Meaning the book itself doesn't give any. It gives broad stroke commandments. Like, for example, tzitzis. I'm wearing tzitzis. Nowhere in the Torah does it explain this. It just says fringes. Well, fringes doesn't tell me eight strings, five knots, four cornered garments. Well, actually, it does mention four cornered garments. That part it mentions. No, but what if you're not wearing a four cornered garment? Are you wearing a four cornered garment? Yeah. Oh, you got tzitzis? Yeah. Okay. You wearing a four cornered garment? He's not. So you have no mitzvah right now. Okay. You're wearing a four-cornered garment. I always feel bad for Jews and ponchos. Because it's a four-cornered garment. I actually, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the spiritual leader of a rock band in America. And they go in ponchos in the winter. And they, uh, they all have sitsis on their ponchos, which is really, really sweet. And they just go like chilled in ponchos everywhere. Like they show up to gigs in ponchos. And they, they all have sitsis on their ponchos. So, um, there's 55,000 laws in here. Who wrote a God or man? Who wrote a God or man? 55,000 laws. The answer is, if I want to keep 55,000 laws, which means I'm crazy, so then God wrote it. And if I'm not interested in keeping 55,000 laws, so I'm going to be leaning way more towards the man wrote it. In other words, it's really hard to be scientific about this. So hard that people can't even figure out an authorship between God and man. That's crazy. Did, do we get it now? Do we get why I'm talking about this? Did I, am I still, raise your hand if you know where I went with all that. Oh man, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> Isn't that a very backwards way of going about it though? Hey, who really does that? Says, ah, I want to follow 55,000 laws, and so I'll believe in God. I don't want to follow 55,000, and so I won't. As opposed to, there is a God, there isn't a God, and based on that, I'll do the laws or I won't. Yeah, I, all I did was doing was bringing up the insane amount of subjectivity involved. That's all. I was just bringing up that it's like extremely subjective, this uh, this this God or man thing. But the... Um, what happens is that we have a program called Discovery. Aaron, you know what our next Discovery is? No idea. Anyway, we have a program. Someday. What? 
Fourteen. Whoa, that's a while. So, so on the fourteenth of October, we have a program called Discovery. So I teach the final class on Discovery, which is all about like the proof. It's about proving, you know, Torah's Torah's di- divine origin. But what happens when you get to the end of that class, you're just like your jaws on the ground. You're just like, oh my gosh! Not only is Torah divine, like it automatically means there's a God because I didn't even know there was a God. So many people actually get Torah. And then realize, wait a second, that couldn't have been written by a human being, so it must be, there's a God. And so they get God and Torah all in one shot. Now their jaws are on the ground now. And then I ask them the question, like, do you guys realize how ridiculous it is that we had to even spend an entire day on this? As if this document could be actually authenticated as a human being's, doc- a human being's writing? That's the most ridiculous thing. And they're all looking at me like, you're right, that is totally crazy what are we doing here and the answer is is <laughs> you say we said the answer is it's it's an hour no one wants to keep 55,000 laws and by the way after all the proofs just you guys tell me what do you think of the percentage of people who walk out of discovery keeping torah people who didn't keep it before what do you think the percentage what would you say we had 100 people in discovery what percentage leave there keeping torah let's say over the next 5 years 75%, 10, whoa, big numbers. What do you say? After 2%, like five years later. Um, we both teach there. What's your estimation? Let's think about it. Not high. Under 10, above 10. A percent? Yeah, after five years, the people who graduate, the 5%. 5%. So I would have given it between 3 and 5%. And these are people who, if they, when they walk out of the room, you could literally say to them, who wrote the Torah? And they would say, well, it wasn't a human being that much, I'll tell you. And it's likely written by God. And then you'd say to them, is that a belief or knowledge? And they would tell you, it's 100% knowledge, 100% knowledge. And, but I would not ask them the third question. And that's, what are you going to do about it? Because the answer is nothing. And so, since we're teaching this on the air of Yom Kippur, let's do something about it. What you gonna do about it? See y'all later. Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the next class is Rabbi Aaron Nekemer. Rabbi Aaron Nekemer is one of the most unorthodox Orthodox <laughs> Jews. <laughs> That's <a> terrible. <laughs> He's one of the most unorthodox Orthodox Jews you ever meet. He didn't mean that. But we don't use the term Orthodox. Anyway, Rabbi Nekomar is the, the totally out of the box rabbi, and he does a class called Seven Questions, where you get to ask the most taboo questions, like anything. I mean, like transgender questions, you know, like, like it, it could be anything. I mean, there's anything you want to ask, you get to ask. And no uh, like not only that, but anyone who stays in his class will usually come back again. So. Because it's just compelling, and uh, he's he's considered one of the unique teachers in Israel. So, I bless you all to join that class. But in the meantime, um, I'm also blessing you with a good Shabbos. There's just one last thing: is if we could pass around a cup, and um, there's a rabbi that comes who feeds a family every Shabbat, and the Thursday class feeds the family. So, if it's changed, it'll buy like drinks, and if it folds, it'll buy like fish or meat. So I know the family personally. They're an amazing family. It's quite large. 
and they've had some they've hit some bad times. So if you guys like to help feed a family, uh, you mind grabbing a cup and we'll just send around a cup, please. Who's gonna write? What's that? Oh, thank you. Here's that hug, Shimon. Okay. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.